You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. There were the lines and lines and lines of armed, heavily armed police, riot police. Um, And it's like this wall of, it felt like a military um, response in every way. And it was quite terrifying. That's the voice of Tarnell Abbott, the great granddaughter of Oakland's most famous writer, Jack London. She's talking about being in a crowd of protesters during Occupy Oakland. The night she's describing is October 25th, 2011. The night that hundreds of riot police attacked protesters with tear gas, beanbag guns, and other quote-unquote non-lethal projectiles. It's the night that Scott Olson, a former Marine recently back from Iraq, was shot in the face with what is believed to have been a tear gas canister. He nearly died. I think the thing that really was almost the scariest was what they call the flash grenades. I had no idea that these were being used in, you know, around civilians. And they just, they make this, a horrible boom and a big light, and you think you've been hit by a bomb. I mean, that's, it's really terrifying. So to me, it it really did, you know, I think it did make me think about the, the scenes in the Iron Heel. The Jack London story that Tarnell just mentioned, The Iron Heel, is one of the most influential books in American literature that most Americans have never heard of. It's easy to see why being in the middle of a massive police beatdown would resurrect this mostly forgotten story in Tarnell's memory. In the climax of The Iron Heel, there's a street battle between an urban underclass and U.S. government forces. The government has been taken over by an elite group of wealthy businessmen, and they use the military and mercenaries to crush the working-class uprising. If you were in the streets of Oakland on that night, when hundreds of cops in Darth Vader-ish riot gear made their move to get rid of the Occupy encampment, the metaphor of being squashed by the iron heel of the oligarchy probably doesn't need much more explanation. However, if you weren't at Occupy, how about this comparison? The Iron Heel is the evil government in the Hunger Games that Katniss fights against. All those scenes in the Hunger Games where President Snow uses the military to destroy the districts who are rising up to demand their equal piece of the pie? Yeah, Jack London wrote that story over a hundred years ago. The tale of the authoritarian government run by wealthy elites trying to keep the people down while at the same time pretending that everything is just fine, has been told and retold in countless books and movies. But with the Iron Heel, Jack London pioneered this template. He created a dystopia that echoed throughout the pages of books like 1984 and Fahrenheit 451, and foretold real-life scenes like those we saw on the streets of Oakland during Occupy. But this episode isn't about Occupy Oakland. It's not even really about Jack London. Those topics are both too big and complex to try to cram into a single show. 
This episode is about the Iron Heel, why that book was a failure during Lenin's lifetime, how it influenced some of the most important writers and political leaders of the 20th century, how London's own East Bay family ended up embodying one of the main lessons of that story, and, of course, its place in East Bay history. Before getting into the legacy of the Iron Heel, here's a quick plot summary. The narrator is a historian who lives in a kind of post-capitalist utopia that's set 700 years in the future. But there's a story within that story. This future historian shares a recently discovered journal written by one of the leaders of a failed revolution that is set between the years of 1912 and 1932 which would have been a few years in the future for Jack London, who wrote the book in 1906. Got that? So, in other words, most of the events in the book are supposed to take place in the near future of Jack London's time. Okay, so in this journal that's being shared by a future historian, a woman named Avis describes meeting and falling in love with an East Bay socialist rabble-rouser named Ernest Everhard. She's from a wealthy Berkeley family, and Ernest radicalizes Avis by convincing her that the business world, organized religion, the media, academia, and politicians are all corrupt. That basically all these systems are structured in a way to keep the powerful in power. Eventually, Ernest confronts a group of business leaders and warns them that their greedy system won't last because the millions of people suffering under the system will rise up and revolt. The business leaders, who are basically in control of the U.S. government, respond to this threat by instituting a kind of fascist authoritarian regime known as the Iron Heel. Avist and Ernest and their comrades in the resistance go underground and try to lead an insurgency against the Iron Heel, but it fails. Their revolution is crushed. And the historian explains how several other attempted revolutions after the time of the Everhards fail as well. Eventually, the Iron Heel is deposed, and a kind of socialist paradise emerges, but that process takes place hundreds of years later and isn't really explained in the book. Jack London was a socialist, and this book, The Iron Heel, is essentially a rallying cry against capitalism. I asked Harnell why she thinks her great-grandfather chose to tell the story of a failed uprising one in which the heroes are all killed. Here's what she said. I think he, he foresaw the possibility that there might be many, many rebellions or revolts that would be squashed and that it wouldn't happen in one generation or two generations even. I mean, he's got, you know, his the narrative of the uh, historian from the future 700 years after the events that are taking place. So that's taking a really long view. I mean, hopefully it won't take that long. Did you hear that? Hopefully it won't take long. Just like her great-grandpa Jack London, Tarnell Abbott is a socialist. Her political beliefs are the reason she was out in the streets during Occupy Oakland. And this is the part where I should explain why I'm talking with Tarnell about the Iron Heel and not some scholar of Jack London literature or one of his other descendants. After that brutal crackdown, 
the one I've described earlier where the riot cops almost killed a veteran, Tarnell wrote an essay about that night. Because I was involved in Occupy in Oakland and I wrote a little piece about my experience there and I evoked the name of Jack London because I was right at 14th and Broadway where he used to get on his soapbox and um, it just, the scene with the police firing into the crowd reminded me a lot of the Iron Heel. After Tarnell published that essay, she was contacted by a man in Turkey who was inspired by her words. He wanted Tarnell to come out to Turkey to collaborate on turning the Iron Heel into a theatrical production, a play. Tarnell won't even tell me this Turkish man's real name now, because since they staged that performance, the Turkish government has started acting a lot more like the authoritarian government in the Iron Heel. Killing demonstrators, arresting journalists, cracking down on citizens for criticizing the president, that kind of thing. Looking back, Tarnell's Turkish friend couldn't have picked a more appropriate story to stage in his country at that time. Since then, Tarnell has put on productions of the Iron Heel a few times around the Bay Area, including this past August at the Humanist Hall in Oakland. Here's Tarnell explaining why she decided to revive this story that's over 100 years old and continue performing it in 2016. It has a lot of relevance for today in the U.S. and now in Turkey, where it's definitely repression is happening really badly in Turkey, and uh, it's it's very frightening when the state takes control of everything and um, starts to squat people. It certainly predicted world war in Europe and fascism, which we certainly saw in Europe. But I would say that we today in the United States are are living under a, a kind of a gentle, kinder fascism. And I mean, this is just, it's that collusion between government and, and big business is just, it's wrecking this country. That's one of the stunning things about the Iron Heel, the problems that London describes in this book. Rising inequality, governments invading people's privacy, and worse business elites turning various sectors of the working class against each other. All these things are still happening. And what makes this even scarier is that so many of the things London predicted in the book came true. George Orwell, the author of 1984, probably the most famous dystopian novel of all time, said that London made, quote, a very remarkable prophecy of the rise of fascism. Two of the founders of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky, gave Lenin credit for predicting how capitalist leaders would divide and conquer the working class by favoring some unions over others. London even warned against, quote, nine-tenths of one percent owning the majority of Americans' wealth, framing the problem of inequality similarly to how the Occupy movement would describe the same problem a century later. The Iron Heel also predicts the rise of factory farms, false flag terror attacks, McCarthyism, and even the attack on Pearl Harbor, although he predicted the Germans would be doing the bombing instead of the Japanese. One plot point that seems particularly relevant to the Bay Area right now is London's idea that elites would create quote-unquote wonder cities full of technological marvels and beautiful art that would be totally inaccessible to the outcast lower classes.
One edition of the book had a cover image depicting an iron heel crushing a poster of Salvador Allende. Allende was the Chilean president who was overthrown by a CIA-backed right-wing coup in 1973. It's not much of a stretch to connect that real-life example of oligarchs and the military destroying a people's movement to the events described in London's book. That's why the Iron Heel was translated into 33 languages and sold millions of copies, because the theme was so universal. Throughout the 20th century, as anti-colonial movements throughout the world fought for their independence against imperial armies and puppet regimes, countless real revolutionaries read the book and were inspired by it. All this success, however, came after London's death in 1916. When the book first came out, it was a total flop. London wasn't completely surprised by the book's poor sales. He knew that his adventure stories about rowdy sailors and miners chasing the Klondike gold rush and things like that would always be more popular than his political stories. But most socialists didn't like it either. And this did come as a surprise to London, who had just come off a national lecture tour with other socialist speakers. Although major radical leaders like the Bay Area labor organizer Harry Bridges would eventually embrace the Iron Heel, most of London's contemporaries hated the book. Tarnall summed up the reason for this rejection pretty well. It's a difficult novel. I, I would hazard the guess that the socialists of the era probably thought it was too gloomy. And, um, you know, they want the happy ending too. In the early 1900s, socialism was growing in popularity in the United States. It wasn't a dirty word yet, as it would become during the Cold War. Some even thought that a socialist could become president of the United States. So why didn't Lenin feed into this left-wing optimism and give his readers a more immediate happy ending? When were the working-class rebels win, instead of being executed? I think it was because London had already experienced so much horror and suffering in factories, slums, and even prison. He knew how brutal and entrenched the current power system was. And he knew a socialist movement wasn't big enough yet to seriously challenge that structure. Here's Tarnall with some thoughts on how London's own experiences of being exploited from the time he was a young boy in Oakland led to his radical political consciousness. He went through a phase um, as a young man where he thought that through his own hard work he could, you know, pull himself up by his bootstraps and succeed. And, yeah, not only did he work in a cannery from a very young age, he worked in a jute mill. And then at some point he, um, he took a job as um, shoveling coal in the power company, and he was convinced that he could get to a, you know, a top managerial position if he started at the bottom and worked his way up. And then he found out he had replaced two men, and he, he damn near broke his wrists doing that. He had to tape them up and so on afterwards. So he saw that, that attempt to climb out of the abyss was unrealistic. The coal shoveling incident that Tarnall just mentioned was the final straw for London when it came to grunt work. He had been putting in 10 hours a day for about 10 cents per hour at an Oakland power plant. The work was destroying his body and the pay wasn't even enough to live on. In this way, the industrial sweatshops of Oakland are one of the birthplaces of the modern vision of dystopia. 
London soon chased opportunities to make money elsewhere, and he only grew more and more disgusted with a system that basically boiled down to every man for himself. That realization, along with his voracious reading habit, shaped his socialist philosophy. Tarnall explains. When he went to the Yukon to look for gold, to try to get rich quick, he <laughs> he carried Karl Marx up the Chilkut Pass. <laughs> and I think his experience up there in the Yukon was another affirmation along with reading Marx and having, you know, putting together an economic understanding of how everybody gets trapped. Um, and he certainly saw the struggles of, you know, these desperate men who most of them didn't make any money at all. I mean, and he got really sick with scurvy. He almost died there. Even though the main uprising described in the Iron Heel gets crushed, the story does eventually get a happy ending. It just takes hundreds of years to get there. I think the message is don't give up hope. You know, you may not see it in your lifetime, but don't give up the dream that, you know, we can have this ideal society, that, that having that dream gives you a purpose to keep on. This is a message that Tarnell has clearly taken to heart. On a smaller scale, and with much less bloodshed, Tarnell and her fellow activists in the Richmond Progressive Alliance have spent many years fighting the Iron Heel in their backyard, the oil giant Chevron. And, against improbable odds, they've actually been winning a lot of the battles on issues like how much pollution the refineries are allowed to legally spew into the air. We have successfully wrested control from basically Chevron, who used to really run this city. It's always been a company town. And over the last 10 years, we've run a number of very successful campaigns. We've elected council people and a two-time mayor, Gail McLaughlin. And this we've done using people power. It's all volunteer work. It's all um, small donations from individuals. The candidates that we endorse do not take corporate donations and they don't take money from the developers. So the traditional power base is shifting to where it should be. Before getting involved with the fight against Chevron, Tarnell was a librarian. During the post-9-11 Bush years, she helped start a campaign challenging Patriot Act provisions, letting the government spy on what library books people were checking out. And before that, well, I'll let her tell the story. I've been involved with politics probably most of my life because I grew up in a very politically active family. So I, I literally spent uh, early years on picket lines of one sort or another or civil rights movement marches or farm workers marches from, you know, from Delano up to the state capitol. My grandmother, Joan London, wrote a book about the farm workers called So Shall Ye Reap. So from a young age, I was, I was very exposed. And my mom, for a while, I, this was before I came along, she was actually a union organizer. And my father was a shop steward at some point. But um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's a history, a family history of, of involvement. 
And I'm pretty sure that my father was um, blacklisted during World War II. There were certain places that he was not allowed to work and other places where it was okay for him to work. And it was because of his, his politics, essentially. Now, the reason why I'm getting into the history of Tarnall's family is because it helps explain why the Iron Heel and Jack London's radical politics in general are pretty much forgotten at least among most mainstream American readers. Here's Tarnall giving an overview of how most people remember Jack London. In the United States in general, he is known as the author of adventure stories and dog stories for boys. And that's kind of about it. it it's sort of a dumbing down of, of someone who had so much more going for him and in him. And it, partly it's a, the commercialization of this icon. And that's, that's exactly what, you know, Jack London Square is all about, Jack London Inn, the Jack London Theater. But even in the scholarly community that does study Jack London, Mostly they really don't take his socialism very seriously or his politics very seriously. It's, you know, they'll write about everything else, but they don't, um, they don't understand about the politics or they don't want to look at it with very few exceptions. But in the world, in the international community, he is, not only is he better known in general, but he is also known as a socialist. And he does have that international reputation. According to Tarnall, this decision to ignore the Jack London who ran for mayor of Oakland on the socialist ticket twice, in favor of the Jack London who wrote about dogs, was very intentional. At the time of his death, Jack London was the most famous author in America. He was the first U.S. writer to earn a million dollars, and he was constantly the focus of media attention because of all his real-life adventures, like trying to sail around the world. So when he died, his family knew that his estate, including the royalties of his books, the right to turn those books into movies, and the overall Jack London brand was a potential gold mine. But here's the thing. Even though Tarnall's great-grandma was Jack's daughter, she didn't inherit any of that estate. I'm not going to get into the whole complicated family tree, but basically neither of Jack's two children inherited control of the Lennon legacy. It all went to his second wife, Charmian, and then after she died, to Jack's sister's family, the Shepherds. Now, remember that for most of the 20th century, anything related to socialism was totally taboo. If you're trying to sell books and kitty-friendly movie adaptations of those books, and tourist attractions. You don't want to have any of those associated at all in any way with radical politics. According to Tarnall, those in control of London's estate didn't just downplay his socialism. They tried to hide the existence of his radical descendants who were actually out there living that legacy. She told me that for many years, there was not a single mention of Jack's daughters in the historical exhibits up at Jack London State Park in Sonoma. Here's Tarnall putting all this historical revisionism into context. During the 50s, there really was harassment of people who were very political. 
So my grandmother was very outspoken politically, and she didn't, you know, I don't think that the the community that made a living off of Jack London included the man that was the developer of the Jack London Square. So we were never very popular with those people. We never had any, um, my family never had the right to Jack London's name, for example, or any royalties, none of that. You know, so I think there was some embarrassment on the part of the Shepherd family who did inherit the money and the estate that, you know, it would be maybe easier if we really didn't exist. I think that they just didn't want that part of Jack London to be known. You know, I don't think Jack London would have been very surprised at how all this played out. After all, he was arrested in front of Oakland City Hall for standing up on a soapbox and giving a political speech. So it's not like he was unaware that socialism was unpopular among those with power. Tarnall's grandma Joan was just a girl, only 15 years old, when her father died. Even when Jack was alive, though, he didn't live with Joan or see her very often. But more than anyone else in the wider London family tree, it was Joan, and then her son, Bart Abbott, and then his daughter, Tarnall, who embodied the spirit of Jack Lennon's radicalism. Hearing Tarnall tell stories of her grandma's farm worker solidarity activism, and her father's rabble-rousing at the Oakland port, and how her own history of odd jobs and life in a poor Mexican pueblo shaped her politics, it makes sense to me that they carried Jack Lennon's blood in their veins. In this sense, his own family is supporting his theme in the Iron Heel that multi-generational struggle is necessary for lasting social change. Maybe it's because they didn't get his money that Tarnall's family is the one that carried on Jack Lennon's political legacy. But it's indisputable that one thing they did inherit was his opposition to authority. Here's a quick story. One day, Jack Lennon was attacked by the owner of a seedy Oakland bar over a misunderstanding. Even though Jack was the victim, the bar owner was politically connected. And when the cops came, they arrested London instead of the man who attacked him. London tried to fight the case in court, but even though he was America's most famous author, his fame was no match for the Oakland political machine's ability to take care of its own. London was so furious about this injustice that he vowed revenge on the judge. He literally said, quote, Someday, somewhere, somehow, I'm going to get you. End quote. <laughs> Here's the thing. He was right. He got his revenge. Through some investigative work, he revealed that the judge, who was protecting the bar owner that beat up London, actually owned the property that the saloon was on. There was a minor scandal in the local media over this brazen conflict of interest, and that judge lost his next election. The reason I bring up that story is because Tarnall also told me a story about using her wits to stand up to authority, and it just made me happy to see that fiery aspect of Jack Lennon's temperament still living on in his descendants. Here's Tarnall talking about what happened when she violated the ban on American citizens going to Cuba. She went there in 1969 to help harvest the sugar crop. When I went to Cuba, I had the FBI knocked on my grandmother's door because my ad her address was on my passport. So she sent them away. 
Then they called me and they threatened me. They said that they would visit me at my place of work and didn't I want to talk to them? And I said, well, no, I mean, if you want to come to my place of work, I'm 16, I'm a student at Berkeley High School. We can meet at my civics class and we can have a conversation with the class about why you think you have to visit me because I went to visit a country that you don't like. No, I never heard from them again. Ha <laughs> ha! Take that, Iron Heel. Okay, I know that was kind of jarring. But that was the point. There's no easy way to segue gently into this next thing, but it needs to be addressed. When I mentioned to a few friends that I was researching Jack London, some of them responded by expressing negative feelings about Jack London and his reputation of racism. The reason I'm not getting into that topic during this episode is because it's incredibly complicated. There are literally several books focused on examining Jack London's relationship to racial issues, and I need to do a lot more research before I feel qualified to do a show on that topic. Yes, he said and wrote some horribly racist things. He also spoke out against racial prejudice. Yes, he wrote books depicting people of color as savages. And he also wrote books where people of color were the heroes and greedy white people were the villains. He was partially raised by an African-American woman, and some of his close friends were people of color. But that absolutely does not excuse the examples of ignorant, vile stereotypes that are also part of his work. I'm not trying to whitewash the racism issue out of the Jack London story. In fact, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to challenge the white supremacist perspective that's all too common in historical narratives. It's just that I need to spend more time studying that topic before tackling it. Okay, thanks for listening. Now for the credits. For this episode, I want to thank Tarnal Abbott, Jean Anderson, and Annalee Allen, who hosted a wonderful Jack London history walking tour that I attended recently, and everybody who was involved with the recent production of the Iron Heel performance in Oakland. I also want to thank Earl Labor, who wrote a fascinating biography of Jack London called An American Life. As always, I also want to give a shout out to everybody who is working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. The East Bay Yesterday website is still a work in progress, but to see photos for this story, follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Music for this episode was provided by Studio Noir and P. Lander. And please, please, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment or a rating. It means a lot. And if you know someone who you think would like this show but doesn't really know how to listen to podcasts, do a good deed today and help them figure out how. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. For East Bay Yesterday... I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Thanks for listening. Oh, and this happened while I was interviewing Tarnal, and I just thought it was kind of funny. Enjoy. And I even think the Wolf House 
was more about having the, the kind of hospitality that he offered to uh, people from all walks of life, um, artists, intellectuals. Hey, Ruby, come here. Come I feel on. like if we're going to be interrupted by a noise during an interview about Jack London, a, a dog, <laughs> a dog barking is the right thing. Ironically appropriate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>